0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. You've read the headlines or heard the news by now. Thousands of doses of a COVID-19 vaccine by drug makers Pfizer and Moderna are expected in in our state by the end of this month. Uh, New York Times reporting earlier today that uh, the, the vaccine is looking like it provides strong protection based on the clinical trials for people, regardless of age and race. Now, next week, Moderna will also be he- getting a hearing before this independent vaccine advisory group. And uh, again, this week, Pfizer will be um, looked at as well by this group. Now, do you still have questions about the COVID-19 vaccine and how Connecticut residents will get it? This hour, we want to help answer your questions. So here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also uh, share a comment on our Facebook page, and you can tweet us at where we live. Now, we invited two members of Connecticut's Vaccine Advisory Group onto the show today to help answer your questions. On Zoom, Dr. Reginald Edie, he's president and CEO of Trinity Health of New England and the co-chair of Connecticut's COVID-19 Vaccine Advisory Group. Dr. Edie, welcome to the show.
2: It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Also here on Zoom, Dr. Takesha Dewan Everett. She's Executive Director of Health Equity Solutions, and she's also a member of Connecticut's COVID-19 Vaccine Advisory Group. Uh, Dr. Everett, thank you as well for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Lucy. Excited to be here.
0: Again, the number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Uh, Dr. Edie, I wanted to start with you. Uh, again, you're a leader of healthcare care system. Uh, you are an emergency medicine physician. How are you feeling about this role that you're now in? So many of us were not expecting to live in a pandemic.
2: You know, uh, it's very interesting times, clearly unprecedented. Uh, when I went to medical school and trained in, in my residency to become an emergency medicine physician, many, many years ago. I had no idea that such a day or a time would be before us. Uh, I, am, I consider myself to be highly blessed to, to, uh, to be with 13,000 men and women at Trinity of New England to take this on. I mean, what greater team uh, to go through such unprecedented times than the, the colleagues that I am fortunate enough to work with every day. And I also consider myself to be extremely blessed to have been tapped on the shoulder by our governor. Um, to take on such important work. It allows me to be more community-facing. It allows me to bring science into to, uh, uh, de- deriving a solution. And it also allows me to ensure that uh, vaccine equity takes place within the state of Connecticut. So I, I have no complaints at all.
0: Mm. it's a complicated uh, also process when you think about you know more than three and a half million residents in our state and this is a, a new vaccine that a lot of people still have questions about and we hope to again answer those questions for our listeners the number 888-720-9677 you can also find us on facebook and twitter at where we live i mentioned at the top dr Edie uh, this week fda's independent advisory committee reviewing uh, the pfizer vaccine trial data so it's it's expected that they'll receive emergency approval. So how quickly will these doses get to our state?
2: So uh, as as you indicated or alluded to, uh, the the meeting should take place with the FDA in in just a couple of days. Uh, We anticipate that and and hope that they give the thumbs up to the Pfizer vaccine. And then within, we think, three to five days, uh, the completion of the distribution to each state will take place. And uh, you know, fate on our side, we will have a vaccine available as, as early as next Monday uh, in preparation to administer it to the citizens uh, in phase 1A. Mm.
0: Next Monday, I heard you during the briefing with the governor Holds, uh, I guess twice a week now, was it last Thursday, where you said uh, one of uh, the biggest challenges will be storing this vaccine. Tell us what you mean.
2: Yeah, so um, as it relates to the Pfizer, and this is just the Pfizer uh, offering, um, mm-hmm. as as reported uh, on, in m- multiple spaces, it requires a very low temperature for storage. It's a very uh, fragile, if you will, protein, and it has to be at least minus 70 degrees in storage. Uh, the shipping will take place uh, in in, in, a, in a box, if you will, that has dry ice that has to be re- uh, open only for a certain amount of time. Uh, the dry ice has to be sort of reactivated, if you will, and there's a limited number of days that that come with that that transporting box. Um, then there, are, then there's the ultra low temperature freezers, and you know some 10 to 12 hospitals in the state of Connecticut have the ability to store, um, and you know that's that's good news, but the but the not so good news is, are the logistics around. Just having ten to twelve hospitals, because we have a number of hospitals that don't have the ability to store it, then this creates a partner the necessity for a partnership such that certain hospitals, let's say Saint Francis and Trinity Health New England, will then partner with the hosp- the other hospitals within Trinity Health New England. But it also must make sure that we partner with hospitals that don't have that low temperature freezer capability to ensure that they have the vaccine uh, and it's handled safely so that we can move toward uh, vaccinating. The citizens in the respective geographic areas.
0: We've heard uh, Governor Lamont outline who will be in this first wave, so to speak, of getting the COVID nineteen vaccine. That includes healthcare workers and people in nursing homes. Uh, Doctor Edie also medical first responders. This is being called Phase One A. How many people are we talking about? And in the month of December, how many will you get to?
2: Yeah, so I think the number is around eighty four thousand healthcare workers in the state of Connecticut. Uh, that, is, that is the last figure that I will call uh, hearing. So that number is subject to change. Uh, but I will tell you, though, that it's very good news that we're anticipating uh, that, is, again, as early as next week, we should receive uh, 16 trays uh, that will be uh, allocated to the hospitals and then 16 more trays that will be allocated to long-term care facilities. Uh, we also think that um, that that's let's, let's say that's thirty about we think about thirty one thousand two hundred mm-hmm. vaccines. So remember, there are two injections. So mm-hmm. that should take care of the first injection uh, next week and then a subsequent weekly distribution of additional vaccines. And then the, the extra good news, I think, is that Moderna will likely be approved and they should start uh, providing vaccines here in Connecticut the following Monday. And so we think that to answer your question that most of at least 80% of the healthcare workers in the state of Connecticut can and and will be vaccinated uh, within the first 30 days uh, starting next week.
0: You can join our conversation with Dr. Reginald Eady Again, he's president and CEO of Trinity Health of New England. He's also co-chair of this vaccine advisory group here in our state, the number 888-720-9677. Chuck is calling in from Rocky Hill. Chuck, go ahead.
1: Hi, good morning. Thank you so much, Lucy, and Dr. Edie. thank you very much uh, for all of your work. I understand the logistical challenges of this undertaking. I've been watching somewhat closely. My primary question, and you just alluded to it a little bit, is with the initial allotment of vaccines that the state of Connecticut receives, is it the plan to withhold half of them, which will then be administered as the second dose for the initial cohort of the phase 1A population, or does the state plan to administer every vaccine it receives and then hope to get supplemental vaccines delivered within the window of time to administer dose two?
2: Right, that's a great question, Chuck. So happy to answer that. So so the manufacturers, for the sake of this conversation, both Pfizer and Moderna will be administering uh, the the first allotment, understanding that they have the ability to provide the second allotment within the number of days uh, that the second uh, injection is expecting to happen. So to answer your question, when we get approximately 30,000 injections on week one, uh, we expect it to give only the first dose to 30,000 people. An- understanding that one week later, we'll have a second allotment. But remember, uh, Pfizer requires a 14 dates uh, difference between the first and the second. So it won't be until the subsequent, that, that is two weeks later, that allotment will be geared toward providing the second injection for the citizens
0: Mm -hmm. for uh, people who work in the healthcare industry or are at hospitals uh, that are maybe uh, the centers for where uh, this uh, vaccine will be administered dr Edie, it sounds like they may not have trouble uh, remembering to get that second dose but i would think uh, the once it gets more into the general population making sure that people are getting the dose and getting them within that certain time and that's also a challenge
2: you're absolutely right. And, you know, just to, to add to, to the complexity of this this whole uh, operation, uh, not only should we, do we have to make sure that whoever we inject the first time is back in the 14 or 28 or, or, or 30 days uh, later, uh, but we have to make sure also that they receive their second injection that's equivalent to the manufacturer of the first injection. So in other words, if you get Pfizer the first time, you have to get Pfizer the second time. And we think that, you know, Moderna is going to have its offering and a, a week later uh, subsequent to Pfizer. So, therefore, we th- that adds a bit of a complexity because, we you know, Pfizer has to follow Pfizer and then Moderna has to follow Moderna. And then to the extent where AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson or other manufacturers come in, now, now we'll be sort of juggling four balls instead of uh, just one with, with Pfizer starting next week. So, yes, very complex. Uh, but the good news around that is that the state is, is encouraging us and providing a training for us to use the VAM system, which is the Vaccine Administration Management System. Uh, and that will allow us to catalog the necessary information for each of our citizens. It will highlight uh, the, the vaccine that you receive, the information on the particular vial from, from which the vaccine came, and also the importance of following up in the respective number of days. Based on the manufacturer's recommendations, and then it will also communicate with the state. So this is very important. It'll communicate with the state citizens once you receive your first vaccine that hey, you're due to get a second vaccine on this particular day, and it will send electronic uh, text message reminders to the citizens. So this is all coming together very nicely. It is not to suggest that you know there won't be any hiccups uh, when the vaccine lands in our state, but. You know, weighing the pros and the cons and the work that have been done by our state under the governor's leadership, we're in a very good place as a state, uh, and I'm proud to be a citizen of it.
0: You're hearing Dr. Reginald Edie again, President and CEO of Trinity Health of New England, co-chair of Connecticut's COVID-19 Vaccine Advisory Group, as we are here to help answer questions about this vaccine and how it'll be given out in our state. We want to hear from you what your questions are. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-9677. Again, Dr. Takesha Dewan Everett is also with us, Executive Director of Health Equity Solutions, and she's a member of this vaccine advisory group. Uh, Dr. Everett, I wanted to ask you, again, it's so complicated thinking about the logistics and the fact that there are so many days between uh, the okay. doses, the two doses, and just making sure that people get it uh, when they need to. But then the question of get, getting people encouraged to want to take this vaccine and thinking about it from um, you know a health equity standpoint, which is what your work is in. What are some of the things that you're thinking about uh, in this
1: plan uh, moving forward? Thank you for the question. Um, I am, you know, thinking about this entire process through the lens of equity and coming into this, particularly looking at racial and ethnic uh, populations who've been minoritized in the United States and what their fears, concerns and uh, thoughts are related to the vaccine. Currently, uh, there is a lot of uh, communication that is unclear and that I think we are actively working toward making a lot, providing a lot more clarity about the efficacy of the vaccine. There's a lot of concern generally, historically and contemporary about the mistrust in government and the healthcare system overall that we need to confront and combat in the conversation around the vaccine, and I think we also need to be thinking about this in terms of distribution as well. What is the equity lens around that? Mm. Let's
0: talk more about that, because I mentioned this phase 1A, healthcare workers, uh, nursing home residents, and I believe workers and medical first responders in that first wave. And then uh, the governor um, has mentioned uh, this second phase 1B, uh, where you will have people in congregate settings, uh, maybe people that are more high risk uh, over the age of 65 in the general population. But uh, do you have um, concerns about thinking about the, the jobs that people hold, enabling them to get the vaccine first, uh, Dr. Everett?
1: Well, I want to start by saying the ACIP really dictated a lot of the order, if you will, of how the vaccine should go forward. And I sit on the allocation committee, Mm -hmm. and we've done a lot of discussions and provided recommendations that the governor has considered in his announcement of the rollout in terms of the different phases and the different groups. I think it's very interesting how we think about who are the kind of frontline workers and those who are essential in the process of the COVID-19 pandemic. And when I look at that and think about that lens, I think that healthcare workers and healthcare professionals are definitely without question essential. When you look at some of the different professions within the the overall categorization of healthcare workers, you definitely have people of color who are overrepresented and under, if you will, overrepresented or disproportionately represented in certain aspects and facets of the healthcare professional workforce. But in addition to that, I think we've learned clearly in this pandemic, something we probably had not considered before, that individuals who work in our necessary retail retail settings are also very essential. So it's telling um, in a number of ways that they're not included in the first wave. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily a problem. We do need to make sure that we have healthcare providers available in order for us to deal with and combat and confront this uh COVID-19 pandemic, but it's just very interesting, again, how we need to consistently be thinking about defining and redefining essential. Mm. I also think it's interesting to think about congregate settings in the 1B mm-hmm. section, and I ponder quite often the uh, the individuals who are working in and or living in congregate settings that don't have the ability to be easily moved out of those settings should exposure to COVID-19 happen. So as Dr. Edie um, mentioned about the rapidness of how we will be receiving the uh, allocation of the vaccine to the state, I'm curious as well as to how we will continue to think about and evaluate who's getting vaccinated as we're going through the phases.
0: Again, you're hearing Dr. Takesha Dewan Everett, a member of Connecticut's COVID-19 Vaccine Advisory Group. She's also Executive Director of Health Equity Solutions, and Dr. Reginald Eady is also here, President and CEO of Trinity Health of New England and co-chair of this Vaccine Advisory Group. I wanted to take uh, some caller questions now, and you can join us, 888-720-9677. Dr. Mack is calling in. What's your question?
1: Hi, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Well. Go ahead. I was wondering if the committee has uh, thought about expanding the type of healthcare provider that uh, would be authorized to administer the vaccine since it's important that once we receive the vaccine we distribute it into the uh, arms of people as quickly as we can. I was thinking of uh, practitioners like nurse anesthetists, dentists, podiatrists who usually do give injections. I mean, it would not be a big jump for them to be able to do this.
2: Yes. So uh, Dr. Max, uh, you may have heard that just yesterday, I believe the governor uh, signed an executive order expanding or uh, the number, the the titles uh, or duties of responsibility of people in the state of Connecticut that can administer the vaccine. So this allows pharmacists, for example, um, currently, those who are able to administer vaccines will continue to do so. It's just now a matter of expanding that throughout the state once the phases mature and we have more va- uh, more vaccine. And, of course, we've taken care of the, the high-priority uh, citizens, uh, e.g. those in Phase 1A. So I think that's happening in real time, as you suggested. Uh, and then, again, as we move through uh, the latter part of the phasing, uh, we will also be uh recruiting physician offices to also be vaccinators within the state. So I think that that, that all has been addressed and it's just a matter of, uh, you know, the rate limiting factor being the vaccine. It's just a matter of getting that extra vaccine in so that we can expand the number of vaccinators throughout our state.
0: Sandra's calling in from Stanford. Sandra, what's your question? Hi, I actually have two. Let me know if I have time for the second. So my first question is, my mom is 92. She has dementia. And um, and Connecticut has a program encouraging families to keep people at home rather than place them in nursing homes. And the reason I can do that is because they have adult they have an excellent adult daycare uh, center with aides and nurses. And those centers so far are not on the list for the first round of vaccinations, even though the population is the same, you know, memory care or elder, you know, or uh, Alzheimer's or whatever that are in nursing homes so um, uh, does anybody have any advice about how we might advocate that those be included as well?
2: Thank you Sandra. go ahead Dr. Edie. So I think th- this kind of setting and this kind of conversation is the advocacy that we need uh, and and you should know that you're not alone in suggesting that such a population should be considered. Um, what, what we don't know is what the ACIP will say when they meet probably on the 17th. They're likely to, to then continue to, to prescribe uh, in detail who should be also in Phase 1A. But to the extent where they say that, that, that your mother will be in uh, Phase 2, um, you know, the good news is that it, it will just be a matter of weeks before we get to Phase 2 because, again, we think that we will have at least 80% of healthcare workers. Uh, vac- vaccinated, so that's the initial phase one A vaccinated within the first four weeks. Um, so you know th- that means that we will be transitioning into the next uh, group of, of persons uh, shortly after, or sooner, depending upon the the number of people who raised their hand to get vaccinated initially. So so the good news is that we will be getting to that that population uh, in a very short period of time. Uh, and but we will continue to consider your advocacy around including them uh, earlier on and we will take that back to both the allocation committee and the advisory group. So thank you for that.
0: We're going to continue to take your calls, 888-720-9677. Dr. Edie, before we head into the the short break, I wanted to uh, ask uh, Richard on Facebook, you know, and this is something that a lot of people are wondering about, you know, what is known about the side effects of the COVID-19 vaccine?
2: Yeah, so it's a good question. Let me just first start by saying there's a difference between side effects and complications. So here's what we know about complications, if you will. Um, both Moderna and Pfizer and AstraZeneca, so actually all three, have, ha- have reported some side effects, and I will elaborate on what, to my knowledge, they are, uh, but there are absolutely n- uh, no harmful complications reported thus far. Uh, the other good news about uh, what, what they have shared with us Uh, preliminarily, and we'll get more information once the FDA has has combed through the information they provided and approved it, Uh, but absolutely uh, zero percentage of people who actually got the three vaccines required, although they may have gotten COVID, required no hospitalizations, which means that they did not let land in the ICU on a ventilator and did not die. Uh, As far as the side effects are concerned, remember, all our medications, Uh, have some degree of side effects, whether we appreciate them or not, um, or potential for side effects, I should say. The side effects are cold and flu symptoms. Again, not enough to warrant you hospitalization, uh, but it's this time of the year. So it's also difficult to to delineate whether or not those cold or flu symptoms are coming from the vaccine or just exposure that, that we have as human beings during the flu season or this time of the year.
0: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy nall If you're holding to ask your questions, stay with us. We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Do you have questions about how how the COVID-19 vaccine works? Again, later this week, the FDA is expected to give Pfizer approval to start sending doses of the vaccine to states. Moderna has a hearing before this group next week. And Connecticut could see more than 94,000 doses in our state by the end of the month. That's just a fraction of what will be needed. Today, where we live, we want to answer your questions, including how Connecticut will vaccinate its residents who choose to get the vaccine. Again, here's the number 888-720-9677. My guest today on Zoom, Dr. Reginald Edy, President and CEO of Trinity Health of New England. He co-chairs Connecticut's COVID-19 Vaccine Advisory Group. And Dr. Takesha Dewan-Everett, she is Executive Director of Health Equity Solutions and a member of this Vaccine Advisory Group. Uh, Dr. Edy, we talked about 1A. Let's talk a little bit more about Phase 1B. So this is from the end of January through end of May. A lot of people in Connecticut uh, could be eligible. Eligible to get this vaccine, run uh, through the plan with us of, of who would be eligible.
2: Yeah, so we do not know exactly who the ACIP uh, will define, uh, how they will define phase two in the participants in the mass immunization initiative. Uh, but right now we think it's going to be, and this goes to the caller's question earlier about her mother. Mm-hmm. It will be elderly, the, those who have not been vaccinated who are elderly and have underlying conditions. So in general, that's, what we, that's where we think the next phase will, will mature into.
0: You've mentioned ACIP and then I think uh, also Dr. Everett. So this is the CDC or federal government's advisory committee on immunization practices. So the states are taking guidance from uh, this group and how this vaccine should be distributed, Dr. Eadie.
2: That is exactly accurate, yes.
0: And so, when we were talking about uh, people who may be at higher risk and those living in congregate settings, uh, Dr. Everett, there has been a lot of attention on when we think about congregate settings, not to forget about people in psychiatric facilities in our state and not to forget people uh, that are in our uh, state prisons. Uh, I'm getting a tweet from Mel uh, who writes uh, Connecticut Corrections has two COVID 19 deaths in December, a clear uptake in infections. and. Uh, you You know, the question is what happens to people who are incarcerated who are over 65 years old or who may have medical complications? Should they be prioritized in this first wave, Dr. Everett?
1: Thank you for that question, Mel. And I think that's the key question we are grappling with and discussing as the allocation subcommittee of the full advisory group. Our questions and information that we are contemplating is, what is the data telling us about who is at risk in our state for not only exposure, but for poor and adverse outcomes? Who's going to have challenges if they are? Um, exposed or have been exposed to COVID-19 and cannot be moved to an isolated or a segregated location for quarantine. All of those considerations are things that we are discussing in that subcommittee. We have been given the information both from Dr. Edie and Commissioner Gifford, that we're supposed to be thinking about what are the questions about how, uh, excuse me, the questions about who should be prioritized in the process and providing that recommendations and allowing others to worry about the how. So I think that's, uh, I, I believe our next meeting is in um, is next week and we are definitely still continuing to have those conversations about who and how we prioritize individuals within the phases.
0: Mm. Dr. Edie, could you add to that? Because we were just talking earlier in the show about the disparate uh, impact of COVID-19 on uh, black and brown Americans. When we look at uh, our prisons, I believe seven out of 10 people incarcerated are black or Hispanic. And, you know, there are there are calls where if there are people over 65 in our prisons uh, who are high risk and maybe uh, some others who are medically vulnerable, we're still talking about a few Few hundred uh, and not thousands who uh, could then be moved into this first phase. I mean, phase. What are your thoughts?
2: Yeah. So I think that um, you know that that's one of the charges we have, and and specifically uh, Dr. Everett and the the allocation subcommittee will be looking at that. But listen, we 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 have to make sure that we consider uh, those high risk and vulnerable populations who otherwise uh, in such initiatives may not be. Uh, and be, and the reason why it's so important is because, listen, we're one state, right? Just as we're one country and we're one globe. And to the extent where we miss a subgroup of of citizens, that will prolong us masking social distancing, practicing this this type of hygiene that we that we' have been doing since uh, since February. Uh, so it's very important that we are smart enough to to prioritize accordingly in addition to, the ACIP recommendations that we will be were, we were receiving on a regular basis. I'm confident though that the leadership that we have uh, in, in Commissioner Gifford uh, and on all of our three subcommittees, especially the, uh, the allocation subcommittee, that the right decisions will be made. Uh, and again, the rate limiting factor as to how soon we get to each population has to do with the availability of the vaccine.
0: We're going to take some calls again. The number 9677 uh, Doctor Edie, one more quick question before we open the lines, and that is: Is there any instance in our state where this vaccine could be mandated?
2: You know, so the governor has been asked that questions uh, several times, and he have he he has said each time that I've witnessed him answer it, that he has no intention on mandating anything. I can also uh, speak on behalf of. To my knowledge, the healthcare systems in the state of Connecticut, and no one is talking about mandating it as well. And, and here's why because uh, the surveys that have been done throughout the country, and we did a survey within Trinity Health New England, uh, even prior to answering all of their questions, uh, providing some scientific background just having an open and transparent and honest discussion about the vaccine, we have north of 60% of our colleagues of the 13,000 are willing to take it, the vaccine, and and so once we are sending out emails uh, every day within our system, and I'm sure the others are doing the same, we're going to be hosting many community-facing conversations, and we're getting to all the places of worship All the community organizations that we possibly can to share this knowledge. After we have have done more of that kind of work, that 60 percent may reach 70, 80 before we know it, and that's exactly the percentage that we're going to need to create the uh, so-called herd immunization or immunity. Um, so we're, we're on track. I'm very confident. Uh, and as the more we work and the more we have conversations like the ones that like this one that you guys are hosting today, it'll position us appropriately to, to be successful with this vaccine. Uh, just to
0: just, just to clarify, did you say we need up to 70 percent of our population to be vaccinated to get herd
2: immunity? Yeah, the number, the okay. exact number is not known, but you will okay. often see uh, greater than or equal to 70 percent. And because we, based on multiple surveys, we're already at 60, um, the more we have these conversations and reassure or provide elucidation, that number is going to get to 70%. And, you know, it may be 70, 75, 80. I'm not sure exactly the number because the science has to define that uh, depending upon the vaccine. Uh, but, but, yes, uh, whatever that number is, I feel much more comfortable that we'll get there uh, as, as planned by the end of the summer or early fall as a country.
0: So let's take some calls. Julie calling from Manchester. Quickly, Julie, what's your question?
1: Uh, two-part question, please, doctor. If someone were to receive the vaccine and then there's a glitch in distribution to getting the second dose, how protected are they by having at least one?
2: Yeah, so they won't have full, full immunization. Um so that will be a problem, and that's the, that's the same thing as if someone gets the Pfizer first, and then two or three weeks later, they switch to the AstraZeneca or Moderna. Same thing applies. It's like starting over, um, and, and that's why it's important that you get the, the, the science and the research is, is suggesting that you've got to have those two, those prescribed number of days apart in order to be successful.
1: Julie, did you one. have another
2: question? Yes, I do not receive
1: the flu shot as Guillain-Barré syndrome runs in my family. Would you suggest someone with that problem um, getting the vaccine?
2: Yeah, at this point, there's there's no reason why we should think that there is an issue. Uh, but here's what I'll tell you: before you take anyone takes the vaccine, you've got to make sure that you complete thoroughly and and transparently. The, the questionnaire because the questionnaire we we're, we're learning more about the vaccines their efficacy their quality and the, and the safety of the vaccines every single day completing that questionnaire um and answering any questions that one may ask you after you complete the questionnaire will will ensure that that you're the right candidate for the vaccine so i think that screening portion of this whole initiative is extremely important and your cooperation is is, is paramount
0: Katie's calling in from Hartford. Katie, what's your question?
1: Hi, Lucy and Dr. Edie. Thank you for taking my call. Um, My question has to do um, with behavior changes like mask wearing and social distancing um, after the vaccine is administered. How long does it take for the vaccine to be effective both in between doses and after doses? Um, That would mean that we didn't have to do those things anymore.
2: Yeah, that's a great question, and a question we get uh, very often. So according to the science right now, you should not consider yourself immune until after you've had the second dosage or injection of the vaccine, plus you've waited, and I've heard anywhere between 7 to 14 days. So let's just say 14 days. So 14 days after you take your second injection is when you should assume that, that that you have an immunity. Now remember, none of them have an efficacy of 100%, right? So this is where those percentages come in and you've got to pay close attention to them because they are subject to change as the denominator increases or the number of people in each of these studies increase. Um, and so when you think about Pfizer, it has an efficacy of 95%. That suggests that for every 100 people who, who gets the vaccine, 95% of them will have the expected immunity. That 5%, very small number, so that is that is unlike the flu vaccine, which is only 50% effective. Um, that 5% uh, is subject to either a delayed response or they may actually get the, the virus and have some symptoms, but the good news is, That 5% will not get sick enough that they will need to be hospitalized. And according to the data released by the three thus far, should not concern themselves about uh, a dismal outcome if you are infected by the virus. Uh,
0: Dr. Edie, uh, Jeff from Coventry wants to know, say someone does get the vaccine, can they visit people who haven't had the vaccine yet?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So so here's what the science is suggesting right now. Again, no definitive answer. That even if you have reached the 14-day mark post or after you get your second injection, uh, you could still be a carrier. carrier. So that means that potentially, until we have herd immunity in our state and in our country and on the globe, we're going to be asking people and this is sort of where president-elect is saying, I'm going to eventually ask for everyone to continue to mask aggressively for 100 days because they even after that 14 day you could you could technically be a carrier and infect someone. Uh, it just means that because you've been immunized, you don't have to worry about it. but we'll still have to do our part to wear our masks until we reach the herd immunity. and that will likely be the end of the summer. Of next year or early fall of next year.
0: Mm. Jan's been holding from Hamden. Jan, are you still there? Go ahead.
1: Uh, yes, I was wondering if uh, there has been any uh, individuals in the test that were who had chronic immune deficiency
2: and how they dealt with the uh, one of the vaccines.
0: So, Dr. i I'm not sure if you're able to hear. she wanted to know if anyone in the clinical trials had chronic immune deficiencies and how did the vaccine work uh, with them
2: yeah and i I'd love for Dr. Everett to chime in if she's heard anything different but but there are certain categories of people to their knowledge that they're not including at least initially in on the 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 phase uh, three clinical trials um so for example they uh, Pfizer has cut off the participants at uh, at Twelve years old, I believe, twelve or fourteen years old. So no one younger than that was exposed at this point uh, to their vaccine. Uh, Anyone who declared that they were possibly pregnant or known pregnant uh, did not participate as well. And then, of course, they're going to stay away from uh, groups of of people who have immunodeficiencies for one reason or another. Uh, So, so uh, my 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 belief is that initially. Uh, such people will not be able to get the vaccine until more information around the quality and the safety of the vaccine for such populations becomes available.
0: Dr. Everett, did you have anything to add to that question?
2: I would just add that circling
1: back to a comment Dr. Edie made before, this is why being very clear when you are, um, when the vaccine is available, that you clearly fill out your uh, medical history and that you fill out the form very carefully, to be clear, upfront, and honest, because we know that with any, as in any clinical trial, the populations that it has been tested on is where we know the efficacy is, and there are questions about those who have not been involved in that. I think Pfizer, Moderna, and have both been very clear about who has and has not been exposed, and so that, so we have clear understanding of how this will work in those populations.
0: Again, you can join us if you have a question about the COVID 19 vaccine here on where we live, 888 720 9677. James is calling in. James, what's your question? Jim, is it? Yes, Jim. Sorry, go Uh, ahead.
1: Yes, I'm a, a retired military disabled veteran. I receive a lot of my medical care from VA in New Haven and New London and uh, and some through the Navy sub base facility. And I'm wondering, are those uh, medical facilities going to be administering the, uh, um, the vaccines?
2: Dr. Edie or Dr. Everett? Yeah, sure, I'll be happy to take that. To my knowledge, I don't know that uh, our VA uh, medical centers here in Connecticut have the ability to store at the low temperatures. Uh, but nonetheless, um, it, they, they are factored in as you know. For for phase one A, the healthcare workers uh, at the VA hospital, the ones that are out in the field or not necessarily within a, a hospital or a medical center, are also in that in that denominator. So it is expected that some hospitals who have that freezer capability will be partnering with, let's say the VA for this for the sake of this conversation, um, to ensure that they get their share of the each distribution. Of vaccines that we receive here in the state.
0: My guest today, Dr. Reginald Eadie, President and CEO of Trinity Health of New England, co-chair of Connecticut's COVID-19 Vaccine Advisory Group, and Dr. Takesha Dewan Everett, also Executive Director of Health Equity Solutions and a member of the Vaccine Advisory Group. We'll continue answering your questions after the break, 888-720-9677. I'm Lucy nalpa and this is where we live. My guest today, Dr. Reginald Edie, President and CEO of Trinity Health of New England, co-chair of the state's COVID-19 Vaccine Advisory Group, and Dr. Takesha Dewan Everett, Executive Director of Health Equity Solutions, and she's also a member of this vaccine advisory group. Uh, Evelyn uh, tweeted at us, uh, Dr. Everett, who or what organizations are in the best position to represent the Latino community in the decisions prioritizing who receives the vaccine? What can you tell her?
1: Um, thank you for that question. I would say that anybody who is, um, are, so let me start by saying the allocations subcommittee committee work as well as the advisory committee work is all public. Uh, my role on this committee is to look at this from the lens of all people of color. I'm not the only person who's on the group to do that. I, I think that anybody who is interested from the Latino, Latinx, Hispanic uh, population should be following and monitoring these conversations and use all the regular standard points of advocacy, which include letter writing. Um, There's a public comment section when we have our meetings. So speaking there, I do believe that active organizations like the Hispanic Federation, as well as the Hispanic Health Council are two organizations I know off the top of my head who are engaged in thinking about this, but that doesn't mean that they're the only ones. So please be in touch with your typical and regular points of um, advocacy and groups that you care about and listen to, as well as making sure that you're following and monitoring this. It's all available on the uh, Connecticut State Government website.
0: Dr. Everett, we touched briefly earlier on the fact that, you know, there are still people in our communities who don't trust this process or don't trust this vaccine. When we look at uh, history in our country of how especially people of color um, have been marginalized and also how they've been treated by medical institutions, and and so I'm wondering if you could talk more about how to reach these communities uh, and to address their concerns.
1: I think it's going to be critical for us in this in the vaccination process to address and understand the historical and contemporary context related to mistrust in uh, vaccinations, mistrust in government, mistrust in the healthcare system. But above and beyond that, I think we have to be very careful and very thoughtful about our communication around this. There's been a lot of research in the past about people feeling lack of agency, if you will, or lack of choice and how uh, information is being communicated to them as it relates to healthcare, vaccines, uh, healthcare pandemics, etc. So I just think it's important during the uh, communication and rollout of this that we're clear about the process by which these ph- pharmaceutical companies have gone through to test the uh, vaccine, how it follows the normal process that has been done, but just at a rapid more at a more rapid pace, and that we pair with that the recognition that past wrongs have happened and that that's not what this is. And I think here in Connecticut, we can somewhat divorce ourselves from what has happened in the past and saying by recognizing, sorry, we should not divorce ourselves from what has happened in the past and recognize, quite frankly, what people are facing and fearing. So again, I think it's a combination of building agency and will, communicating this effectively, and actually listening to the concerns that people have related to this Mm -hmm. and addressing those concerns directly and doing so very um, thoughtfully and in the short period of time that we have. Mm -hmm.
0: Dr. Edie, you have been uh, talking about this in different communities. What are you hearing from people who may be hesitant? And the fact that they have these concerns, are they being prioritized in this process?
2: Yeah, so I am hearing, uh, you know, just as the literature and the conversations and Dr. Everett alluded to, uh, you know, in communities of color, uh, they they are often reminded, and rightfully so, uh, things like the Tuskegee Institute study. Uh, And uh, and then remember, you know, just a few months ago, there was the testing debacle, if you will, uh, and uh, how, you know, many of us, although as healthcare providers, we did I think a phenomenal job in responding to the demand that was needed from a testing perspective. Uh, We also dropped the ball. Um, And one example is how, although we eventually, you know, we we eventually allowed walk-up, Testing to occur because remember initially it was drive-through only you had to be in a car, and then we realized from the commun- from the community's voice that many did not have access to a primary care provider, uh, so they couldn't get a prescription because we demanded that you have a prescription for the test. And then eventually, I think we got smart enough to, to 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 listen to the community and take the testing to them. And so instead of expecting them to come to us for a test, we took the testing to them. Uh, an example of that is. Is is how we partner with uh, an FQAC charter oak uh, to take a van to the communities and provide the testing. Uh, but you know, it, it it's it's the quality of of the vaccine, it's the speed at which it was developed, uh, and it's the safety of the vaccine. And unfortunately, we can't answer a lot of questions. But I think we've been uh, fairly successful after we've explained how this so-called Operation Warp Speed or this accelerated vaccine process took place. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's all good news. I think it all makes sense. We just need to have the platform mm-hmm. to continue to share that intelligence with uh, communities across uh, the state of Connecticut. Uh, and then once they are armed with that intelligence, then they have the, the right to make whatever decision mm-hmm. uh, that th- they feel is best for them and their families. But I am confident, though, that after those conversations take place, uh, the majority will then convert and say, this is the right thing to do, and I am in to get vaccinated.
0: We just have a couple of minutes left. The hour went quickly, uh, but Marsha wanted to ask quickly, when will those that have had COVID get the vaccine, Dr. Edie?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So, so the science is suggesting at this point that although you've had COVID in the past, it doesn't mean you will have a lifelong immunity. And if you think about the flu, uh, and the flu vaccine, which is an annual vaccine that has an efficacy of about 50%. Uh, it, it suggests that people who have had it may not need to get the vaccine immediately upon availability. Um, some are saying that they're going to get the antibodies test to see if they still have antibodies. But eventually, even though you've had uh, experience and successfully gone through COVID-19, you will, you too will need to be uh, vaccinated.
0: Mm. And when will kids be part of this process, Dr. Edie?
2: I don't have an answer to that. Um, you know, the, the manufacturers are, are having those conversations now. I'm pretty sure the FDA is going to ask that question. Uh, so, you know, to the extent where we learn that, we'd be happy to share that with your listeners uh, once it's available.
0: And so again, the question being that when children will be vaccinated, unknown right now, but hopefully by next fall, is that the goal?
2: Yes, the, the goal is to, to get herd immunity in this country uh, by certainly by next fall.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Dr. Everett, before we end, uh, you know, I saw a headline that New Haven Mayor Justin Elliker wanted uh, his health director himself to be first in line to help instill public confidence. What do you think of that approach? Because when we think about, again, uh, the way our country runs, when we see people that are in certain positions, uh, maybe perhaps jumping the line, even if it's for a good reason to raise awareness, is that the right approach?
1: I think it's going to be really important that there are uh local trusted examples of individuals who are willingly stepping up and stating that they are planning and intend to get the vaccine and actually then do so i think and and, and that's going to be representative uh who that is is going to be different per location, I think. But I think you have to look at faith leaders. I think you have to look at healthcare providers. I think you have to look at hospital leadership. It's really exciting to hear the survey work that Dr. Edie has done and his commitment to this. I think, but again, it has to be people that folks locally care about and really respect and hear from. And I think we also know that nurses are really frontline and one of the most trusted healthcare professionals that are there, so I think that's in that, an added trust value there as
0: well. Thank you so much, Dr. Takesha Dewan Everett, again, Executive Director of Health Equity Solutions, Dr. Reginald Eady. We're going to have to have you back to talk about uh, that second phase. We appreciate your time. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for your calls and questions today.